you would, please remain standing as we read God's Word. Good morning. I believe that Mike has been working through Romans with you and is almost finished with chapter 4. We're going to jump ahead to the beginning of chapter 5, and then when your beloved pastor comes back, whatever mess I make, he'll clean it up. The first five verses of Romans 5, my translation won't sound quite like anything you're reading, but may the Lord bless his reading anyway. Having been justified, therefore, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have come to have access by faith In this grace in which we have come to stand and we boast. Your Bible probably says exalt. Sorry, it's wrong. But we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that affliction produces endurance. And endurance proving character and proving character hope and hope does not put to shame. Again, you probably have disappoint, but it's disappoint. I'm sorry. You probably have disappoint, but it's put to shame. It's the opposite of boast. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes after I let you sit down. But hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you who crafted the words in your fathers as your father's wisdom and you who came and lived among us and received the holy spirit and by the holy spirit stood down satan and all his and all his minions you who by the holy spirit healed the sick fed the hungry broke bread with sinners and outcasts and you who by the holy spirit went to the cross to pay the high price for our salvation. And you who by the Holy Spirit rose triumphant from the dead that we might have victory over the grave. You who by the Holy Spirit have been moving over the church and in the church for the last 2,000 years. We pray that you would come now and that you would dwell in our hearts and you would make your word come alive to us. In Jesus Christ's great Name our Father, we pray. Amen. Now, please have a seat. God bless you. I've been, I've been playing the guitar for, well, enough years that I ought to be really pretty good. But I'm really kind of mediocre. But over the course of time, you know, you live long enough, you play an instrument long enough, and, you know, you get a new guitar about every ten years or so, and you have a few nice guitars, and I have a, a few nice ones. And I want to tell you what, about one of my favorites. Uh, one of my favorite guitars is one I just got as a backup guitar. When I was in college, I got a really nice guitar, and I played it in all kinds of places. And uh, we travel with it some, and, and about 10 years after I got this first guitar... I started to get concerned that it might get damaged. So I figured I needed me a used 
secondhand clunker of a guitar that I could, you know, take camping, travel with, take to the beach, and I wouldn't worry if it got hurt or injured or damaged. So I went to a used guitar shop. I was, by this point, in graduate school in in, uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I found this this really nice guitar for, you know, a, a modest price, and I played it and played it and played it. And then a few years later, no, a few years ago, so several decades later, I'm in another guitar shop, and I see this same exact model in a display case offered at a price of about twice as much as the guitar I had had so that, you know, to protect. In other words, this guitar was twice as valuable as the nice guitar I had in the first place. So I went home and, you know, praise God for the day of Google. So, you know, I I went on the net and I, you know, entered in, you know, my guitar and its and its and its uh, and its um, model number and its serial number and come to find out that this guitar had been made in like 1963 and it was from this it was it was not one of this company's high-end guitars, but it was of this family of guitars that for some reason just took off over the years. Uh, for any wood instrument, the day that you buy it new is the day that it will sound the worst. Because over time, wood seasons and it ages, and the, the sap that's still in the, in the pores of the wood, you know, that stuff dries up and and the and the wood gets these nice air pockets and and on a guitar the the bottom down here where you where you strum it starts to bow a little bit and gets a bigger sound and that can create problems cuz it can throw the neck out of line and you have tuning problems but if it happens just right over over you know 30 or 40 years of playing that guitar it just sounds sweeter and sweeter and so i've come to find out in the first place that this guitar that had just, i just gotten to be my, I don't know, my camping beach party guitar, was really one of my most valuable guitars. And then, so that's kind of a second dimension that I'd come to appreciate about this guitar. Yeah, it was nice and serviceable, it would get the job done. But then I found out it was my most valuable guitar. And then not only that, but when I play in certain settings, the the techies would prefer I use that guitar than than my first guitar. The first guitar sounds really nice in a room all by itself. It's nice rosewood, uh, and so it c- kind of creates a nice big bright sound. The second guitar is a softer wood, and in a room in a large room the sound gets kind of lost. But if you plug it in. The way the the sound system just picks up uh, music after it's vibrate around that all that nice softness, it creates this really wonderful, rich, growly sound. So techies, so techs just love it. So I, I've come to f- appreciate three dimensions of this of this guitar, and it's not unlike three dimensions of our salvation that Paul talks about here in Romans five. In the first place, this guitar just it was a serviceable guitar for me. Our salvation, it 
punches our ticket so we don't have to go to hell and we can go to heaven. But then I found out that this guitar was incredibly valuable. And it's really helpful for us to find out on the far side of getting our ticket punched for heaven that we have become incredibly valuable to our God. And he just isn't putting up with us so that we can get to heaven sometime. But right now, he just lives to relate to you and wishes for you to wish to relate to him. He values you and wishes you to value him in the way that that he values you. And then third, this guitar just is a kicking guitar. And it just, not just kind of works, but, but in certain settings, this guitar just sings. And what Paul wants us to know is that in this life, our salvation gives us the ability to sing and to dance and to know victory and to know joy. So, I'm going to just start back at the beginning here, this passage. Having been justified, therefore, by faith. Praise God from whom all blessings flow that the first four chapters of the letter to the Romans are true. You and I were sick puppies. We were messed up. We were lost. We were confused. And we didn't care at all about that. We were just lost. And God said, and Paul says that Paul, despite his profound anger at our sin, at, despite our profound warping of the life that he had called us to live, set forth his own dear son as a satisfaction for his wrath against our sin. And what Paul is saying in the first four chapters is, There is nothing that you and I have to do. There is nothing that you and I can do to make God no longer mad at us. We don't have to because he's taking care of it. He set forth his son as his own offering in our place. And he is satisfied. Paul says that he that the Father set forth his Son as redemption so that he could be both just and justifier. He could still be entirely right in calling you and me not guilty. This verse recalls the fact that God is a perfectly just judge. And he is still maintaining his justice when he says of Zach and Reggie, not guilty. Good judge can't do that. What a good judge does is judge justly. But because someone has come into the courtroom and said, Judge, I will take the rap. I will take the punishment. God can freely and rightly let us go free. That is, you know, that's really better than having a second-hand guitar. 
That's better than that's just better than getting your punch, your ticket punched. But praise God if you've embraced Jesus Christ by faith, if you've given up trying to be right and be good, if you've let it go into His hands, you really can wake up in the in the morning and say, "I know one thing today: God's not mad at me anymore." God's not mad at me anymore. And the judge does not look at me with a frown and a, and, a, and a scowl. I've been set free. I'm not guilty anymore. But the verse doesn't stop there. Having been justified there by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have come to have access by faith in this grace in which we have come to stand. Not just an acquittal, but peace and access. The only way I know how to explain the heart of what Paul is doing at this point is to ask you to imagine the judge doing more than just judging justly. Do you know what, you know how, do you know how many people in our legal system get set free only to wind up back before a judge it's incredible. It's 70 or 80 percent of the people who wind up, who begin in court, wind up back in court because their lives are still the same. Well, it's imagine that this is a judge who <laughs> looks upon us and says, I know you're guilty, but I made this deal with my son that if he would give his life in your place, I'm going to declare you, you not guilty and you really are not guilty. But you know what? I know it's not as simple as that. Okay, if I were to just let you go from this courtroom, like, where would you go? Well, I would, I would have to say, if, if I really met the Lord of the universe under these circumstances, I'd have to say, well, I don't know. I don't really, you know, the Bible says I'm a homeless uh, child of a, an unwed mother. I have no home. If I have a father, his name is Satan. I have no inheritance. I have no place to go. I guess I would just leave this courtroom and I would go right back to the life that I was going to live, that I'd been living before I came in here. Well, here's what this judge says. He says, you know, that's not good enough for me. I want you to have shalom. I want you to have a deep sense of well-being in your soul. I want you to know that you're not just free and you're not just and you're not just not guilty you're loved so i tell you what i'm going to take off these robes i'm going to come from behind the bar and you and i are going to go to my house would you like that i'd say yeah i think that's pretty good i got nowhere else to go not only that 
you're not going to belong to your to the fatherhood of the devil anymore. You're going to take my name. I have this vast inheritance, this vast estate, and I got plenty of other kids, but you know, I'm like the richest person in the universe. And I could give you I could give you more than you could possibly imagine, and to me it would be just chump change. So how about that? Would you like to come to my house? And would you like to take my name? And would you like to take a share of my inheritance? Because at my table, there is a space with your name on it. At my table, you're going to belong. Because you know this guy who came into the courtroom and said, I'll take his place? He's now your elder brother. And I love you as much as I love him. So, would you come to my place? And would you become my son? Would you become my daughter? Because I wish not just to be your judge. I would be your father so that you may have peace, shalom in your heart, knowing that you are, that you are valued and you are loved. You're not trash anymore. You're mine. That we might have peace and access. Access. Now, I don't know what your experience of your father was, those of you who are fathers, I don't know what sort of father you are. But you know, there are fathers and there are fathers. Mike Card, the, uh, the singer, talks about his father. And he says, my dad was a good dad, he, but he, he was a doctor. And he would come home and he wasn't necessarily that comfortable with his family. So Mike talks about how his dad would come home greet the kids, greet the family, and then he would go into a study and shut the door and go on to work. Or, you know, keep going about his work at home. And uh, little Mikey talks about when he was a little kid, seven or eight years old, going, going to his father's office door and getting down on his hands and knees and like you can see in the, the door in the back there, there's a, there's a line of light underneath there. And little Mikey would get down and he would put his head on the floor and he would look under the door through the, through the gap. And like he would see his dad's shoes sitting under the desk and he would you know, see his dad you know, walking back and forth in the office. And, and little Mikey would, would imagine you know, going fishing with his dad or, or, you know, playing some baseball and say, wouldn't it be nice? When Paul says we have peace and we have faith, I'm sorry, and we have access by faith in this grace in which he stands, what we're talking about is not just a judge who comes from behind the bar of justice and says, now I would be your father. Now I would share my name, my inheritance, and a place at my table with you. But I will give you me. I will spend time with you. I'm not going to come home and shut the door and leave you out there imagining what it would be like to be with me. I want to play catch with you. I want to go fishing with you. I want to go plant a garden with you. I want to go camping with you. I want to be with you. 
Now, I don't know if you have good pictures of that kind of fatherly love in your life or in your mental landscape. I have one. I invite you to think about yours. Here's mine. When Sherry and I were first married, we got this Irish setter named Larry. Larry was 95 pounds of raw Irish setter energy. And during, and seriously, Larry was probably the smartest dog who ever lived. When we'd have guests over, Larry would go sit on a couch and he would, and he would sit. I'm sorry you guys over there can't see this. I'll do this over there too. He would put his hind end up on the couch and his front paws down here and he would cross his legs, his little Irish setter legs, and he would just follow the, congr- the conversation. And you knew he knew every word that was going on because Larry was just smart. See, he would just sit like this. He would cross his legs and he would put his paws down here and he would just go back. And he had these little, and he had these, these real pronounced um, eyebrows. Eye that would just stick up and they would just kind of go like little telescopes. He was just the coolest dog. And at my, uh, our last year in seminary, we rented this little one-room apartment on the top over a dry-cleaning place. And it's a little house that had been converted, a tiny little house that had been converted to this business purpose with the apartment upstairs. So... I would I would sit in my 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 desk was over in a corner and I would sit there with a typewriter. Remember those? Yeah. It, it wasn't even electric, so it was like bang bang bang. So I'd sit there I'd typing away at my papers. And Larry would go sit at catty corner to me, no further away than that pile of rocks over there, only back there, because the room wasn't any bigger than that. And he would just lie there, and he would lie there, and he would lie there. And after a while, he couldn't stand it anymore because he wanted to be with me. And you could just sort of feel him coming. But he would get it. He would ball himself up. And then he would just, he would race across the room. And he would, he's 95 pounds. I tell you that, huge, biggest Irish setter God ever made. He would just, and he would come running across, and he would go, whoa, leaping across, leaping across my hands, up on the desk, all over the typewriter, papers everywhere, and he would go, ha, 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 you want to play, Dad? And you know what? It wouldn't even occur to me not to play with Larry when Larry wanted to play. I just, so I had this little instinct in me that was like, when my, it's almost like Larry, he was almost human, he was almost like our first kid, and he, I just, I would just melt inside, because Larry wanted to be with me, and I wanted to be with him. You know, that's kind of Heavenly Father we have, that, you know, we don't have to worry about our dad being an empty presence who would just come home, shut the door, and go in and pay attention to, like, running the universe. I'm way too busy for you. He's not too busy for you. He loves you. He, he, 
He's waiting for you to wake up in the morning. Because he wants to be with you. A thousand times more than you want to be with him. When you weep, he knows what those tears feel like. Because in his son, he came among us. His son lived as one of us, knowing joy and sorrow. And when he stretched his arms out on that cross and took your wounds into him, the father, the father knows what it feels to lose a son. And your heavenly father knows every, every sorrow as well as every joy that you have and wants to share them. So, like, like, like my old guitar, this guitar isn't just serviceable. It doesn't just get it done. This salvation is the most, is the most precious thing you have because it means that your heavenly Father values you like you can't imagine. He is crazy about you. And because of all that, having been justified therefore by faith, we have peace with our God, access by faith in this grace in which we have come to stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And that's, I felt like I needed to correct the translations because there is exaltation here, but this is, this is, we have bragging rights because we know where history is going and we know where our lives are going. This language of boasting, this is the language, this is the language of Psalm 97, 7. Let those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves of idols, worship him all you gods, and then Jeremiah 9, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and know me, knows me. In the next chapter, Jeremiah is going to talk about the shame, which is the term that Paul's going to use later on, because the love of God doesn't shame us. He talks about the shame that the idol makers are going to have at the last day. And he talks about, he says, uh, the, every goldsmith will be put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful. There's no breath in them. And it, this becomes, this boasting and shame becomes a part of the prophet's argument against the false gods. Isaiah. Isaiah talks about how, oh, you have this nice little idol at home. Well, let's think about how that idol got there. He was once a tree. And you cut down the tree. And you cut it in half. And you used half of it to make a fire so that you could warm yourself. And you took the other half and you set it up. And you carved it a little head. And you carved it little ears. And you carved a little nose for it. And little eyes and a little mouth. But... Does that God think? No, it's just a tree, a dead tree. 
Does it hear? No, it can't hear. Can it see? No, it can't see. Can it smell? No. Can it speak? No, it can't do any of that. Well, let me tell you about our God. Our God knows the past, declares the past, declares the future before it happens. And it's in this context in Isaiah 44 and plus or minus a couple of chapters, and when, which he names Cyrus, who's going to be the means of Israel's being redeemed from Babylon. And Isaiah's doing this 200 years before it happens. This is our God. Our God is the God who parted the waters and, and brought his people forth in safety. Our God is the God who drowned the Egyptians who were their enemies. Our God is the God, jumping ahead, who would walk among us. And who would give mothers back their dead sons. And who would stand in front of Lazarus's tomb and say, Come forth, Lazarus! And Lazarus would come forth. Ours is the kind of God who would send his son to be like him to, and walk on the water and say to the winds and the, and the waves, and they would obey him. That's our God. Our God is alive. So the summary for what Paul is doing here is saying, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Because we know that not only has he not let go of our lives, not only has the judge become our father, become the father who will be with us, but our God is one who made the heavens and the earth and one day will restore them, not only restore them, but make them better than ever. Their gods are diddly squat. Our God rocks. That's why we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. And because of that, and because of that, he says, and not only this, but we boast in our tribulations because tribulation works endurance. What endurance literally is, is the ability to stay under it. It's hupomone, which means under and remain. We can boast in our afflictions because all the afflictions are going to do is make me more fit for the world that he is making over after his likeness. And our hope that afflictions only bring the opportunity for us to stay under his care. And this staying, this endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope And hope will not bring shame. God's not going to leave you and me out there hanging in the wind. The idol makers are going to be brought to shame. But those of us who take our stand on this God will not be brought to shame. And so it's like, okay, our God rocks. Their gods are diddly squat. And even in the hard stuff, We don't boast just in the fact that we've read the last chapter and we know that we win. Between here and there, everything that comes our way that is bad, it's really just a tool in God's hands to give us the ability to endure, to see his love better, to know more deeply the love of the judge who's become father who wants to be with us. I don't know what that means for you. I don't know what stuff is in I don't know what stuff has come upon you. Whether it's sickness, 
or whether it's disappointment in relationships or disappointment in job. I know there's disappointment because you're no different than I am. But those disappointments are precisely the things to boast in because they will only make you more his. They will only make you better as his disciple and follower. So in closing, I'll just tell you the story of Dante. Remember, you know, the divine comedy, the, the Inferno, Purgatorio, and the Paradise? I, I won't even ask for a show of hands, but most of us have to read some portion of Dante's Divine Comedy, somewhere in high school or, or college. Um, it's 14,000 lines of some of the most intricate poetry imaginable. <clears throat> it's one of the great classics of Western civilization. Well, before Dante wrote the Divine Comedy, he was a fairly successful poet, but just fairly successful. It was the divine comedy that made him, if you will, immortal among the poets. You know why he wrote the divine comedy? Well, I'm glad you asked. In the middle of his life, when he was about 35 years ago, he was at, as far as he could tell, the top of his game. Successful poet. He was was one of the leaders of the, the city of Florence. And just recently, his is in the mid, right toward the end of the 1200s, right at the beginning of the 1300s. And his clan had just thrown out their enemies. And it's partly to, uh, to say thank you for Dante's services to Florence. His people sent him on a delegation to Rome to go visit with the Pope. In the meantime... <clears throat> While he's away, the clan that got ousted wind up winning Florence back. And basically now Dante is an outcast. And Dante lives for about another 20 years and is never able to come home. And is, is, is accused of being a criminal put under a death sentence if he were to ever come back to Florence. And he, and he becomes a lonely stranger. He becomes one who, who in, in, in terms of his own poem, and in terms of his own poem, will, will only know, will have to taste the salt of other people's bread. Because in Florence, they never used salt in their bread. So everywhere else he would go, the bread tasted bad because it tasted salty. And would always have to live at, at, at somebody else's house. He would have to go up and down stairs to somebody else's house. And he begins to reflect on how he had just he had come to trust in his success as poet and as minor league and as minor league local politician. And he realized I've been totally confused. And so he starts to rethink his whole relationship with, with God. And he begins to write this 14,000-line song. And there are, two, there are two interviews that he has in the, middle of, in, in the midst of the divine comedy that give a sense of what's going on in him. In hell, he meets another politician, poet, who, had the same, um, who met the same fate that he did. Got... Only this guy had gotten to a higher place and had gotten knocked out. And this man was so bitter and so resentful of what had happened to him that 
He punished the whole universe by committing suicide. In heaven, Dante meets his great-great-grandfather, Cacciaguido. Cacciaguido had been a crusader in his generation and had gone on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And he says to his young great-great-grandson, you're going into exile. Uh, this, all the way through the Divine Comedy, Dante, the character, is given foretastes of the exile that Dante, the man, is, is going to live. And Cacciaguido says to his great-great-grandson, bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to, be taunt, you're going to be thrown out. And you're going to be tempted to get bitter and resentful. But here's, what, here's the deal. As I went on crusade in my day and my way for truth, with the kind of weapons that I had, and as I went on pilgrimage to go to a place where I would know God better, that's going to be your challenge. You have a different kind of weaponry. You have words, not a sword. And your call is not to go to physical Jerusalem. Your call is to go deeper into the Christian story. Your call is to tell the story of who God really is and who his son really is and what the church is really supposed to be. And you're supposed to go back and you're supposed to help God's people sing the story better. Can you do that? And you know what? If Dante had not been kicked out of Florence, if he had not been thrown into this personal exile, he would not have learned what he needed to know to write one of the profoundest poems that the West has been given, and one of the poems that points people most clearly to the person of Jesus and what he has done and laid out for us what the stakes of life are. So, I don't know. There may be no Dantes in the room, but who knows? All I can tell you is that the judge has become your father who wishes to be with you because one came between you and his wrath and this elder brother has made you his brother and sister, guarantees that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And right now you can boast in that hope. And right now, everything that comes your way that would drive you to tears and loneliness, bitterness or anger, They're just tools in his hands to make you understand that he loves you and wishes to be with you and wishes and is working towards your good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you great thanks. For you have come between your father's anger and our sins, and you have turned his frown into a smile, and you have enabled us to take his name, and you live with us, and you, and you live inside us, and you promise to be with us at the end, and you promise to be with, with us between here and there. And so we ask you to come. And let us take hold of your promises at a deeper and deeper level. Father, in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.